I am really excited to be here this morning. I'm so excited to be on staff. I'm so excited to be working with the young adults here at Orangewood, and I'm especially excited this morning to get to preach on one of my favorite psalms. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 63 this morning. Um, You've got it here in your bulletin, but you can turn in your Bible if you want to. And uh, before we dive in, I just want to um, give a double plug. Craig just did a really good uh, job plugging the young adult lunch. But next Sunday, right after church, free lunch for young adults in the space And you might be wondering who young adults are. And I would just say, if you think you might be a young adult, you should, you should come. So single, married, kids, whatever. If you want free lunch and you feel youngish, then come. Um, And I also want to say, since next week is also the same week as Trunk or Treat, um, I'm going to be going to both. So 1130, we're eating free lunch. You have time to go home and take a nap and then be back here at four for trunk or treat. But if you have to decide, short bearded dude, free candy and kids and costumes. So if you have to decide, I'd say go to trunk or treat because this won't be your last chance to meet me, won't be your last chance to do something with young adults, but do both. I'll be at both. Um, and I, I look forward to getting to meet some of you. So. Without further ado, let's read Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you so much that we have this space and this time to come be the household of God and be reminded of what's true about you and what's true about us. We need you desperately, and we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, and we ask all these things in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. So a couple of years ago, I heard a story on This American Life, which if you don't know, that's a a radio show on NPR. I listen to the podcast, but you can listen to it on the radio also. And it really stuck with me. And it's about this young troop of girl guides. And before listening to this, I didn't know what girl guides were, 
but outside of the U.S., Girl Scouts are called Girl Guides. So they do the same kind of things. They sell cookies. The young ones are called brownies. They're called Girl Guides. So during World War II, when Japan occupied China, they built concentration camps. Japan, not the Girl Guides. Japan (laughs) built concentration camps. And they were filled with American and British. And one of those camps was called Vaseen. And among the inmates at Vaseen were a group of children, and they were mostly the kids of missionaries. And they'd been studying at a boarding school there. So NPR actually found one of the survivors of this concentration camp um, who was a young girl guide. And her name is Mary Previtt. So she was 82 at the time of the interview, so I'd imagine she's 84 or 85 now. But she was this spunky little lady that just kept breaking out into song in the middle of the interview. And this is what she said. The day after Pearl Harbor was attacked, the Japanese showed up on the doorstep of our school. They put seals with Japanese writing on everything. The tables, the chairs, the pianos, the desks. Everything belonged to the great emperor of Japan. And then they put armbands on us. So Mary Previtt goes on to talk about how the Japanese soldiers would go house to house stealing and hurting people and how her and the other children were separated from their parents and they were put in this concentration camp 24-7. They were guarded by attack dogs and armed soldiers. And as she's telling this, she says something astounding. This is what she says. It was like you weren't going to be afraid if you could sing about it. So we would sing, and then she breaks out into song, but I'm just going to read it. Day is done, gone the sun, from the sea, from the hills, from the sky. All is well, safely rest. God is nigh. And she goes on to say, how can you be afraid when you're singing about all is well, safely rest, God is nigh? How could you be afraid of that? One of the things that we sang when the Japanese were marching us into concentration camp was the first verse of Psalm 46. And of course, she starts singing again. God is our refuge, our refuge and our strength. In trouble, we will not be afraid. And she says this of singing Psalm 46. All of these words just sunk into our hearts. That sticks. It's like you've got a groove sticking in the gramophone record. I am safe. I am safe. I am safe. So Mary Previtt and these other children sang psalms for two years before they were rescued. And today we're looking at a psalm in which David is in a similarly bleak situation. And we find him hoping in the refuge of God and praising him. The heading of Psalm 63 is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And that Hebrew word for wilderness, it can be translated wilderness or desert. But as we're going to see, he was in the middle of the desert, a dry and weary land. And here's what I want you to ask. If you were in a bleak situation in the middle of the desert, would you write a hymn? I wouldn't. That wouldn't be on my mind. So the question is, Why, in the middle of a bleak situation, does David find himself praising God, not just singing a psalm, but penning a psalm? 
And as we look at the passage this morning, I hope to show you that it's David's past with God and his future hope in God that enables him to praise God even in the present wilderness that he finds himself in. So in verse one, it starts, oh God, you are my God. And I remember when I was in eighth grade in youth group, we sang, oh God, you are my God. But at the time, I didn't know that was a psalm. And uh, I remember my friend Daniel and I thought that just some goofy white guy wrote it and it sounded silly and redundant. And I remember telling my friend, it's like saying, hey dad, you're my dad. But actually, first of all, that was borderline blasphemy because it comes from a psalm. But also... In the Hebrew, that word for God, it's two different words. It's O Elohim, you are my El. So that first word for God, Elohim, it's like God's name. And then El is like the title or the office. It's like God with a little G. So he's saying, Elohim, you are my God. So it would be similar to saying President Trump or Donald Trump is president. But it carries more weight than that because maybe you didn't vote for Trump. Maybe you wish Trump wasn't your president. It's actually David saying, Elohim, I acknowledge you as my God. It's like at the end of Dead Poets Society when the students stand on their desk and say to their teacher, oh, captain, my captain. It's like when we as God's people come together and proclaim Jesus is Lord. We know well that in our culture and outside of these doors, Jesus is not recognized as Lord, not to all, but to us, we know that he is Lord and we honor him as such. So even that first phrase, oh God, you are my God, it's easy to breeze past that and think of it as introductory material. But I want you to notice that when things look bleak, when things are perhaps worse than they've ever been for David, he still chooses to recognize Elohim as God. So continuing in verse one, David says, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. So he's saying the same way I'd be thirsty if I were in the desert, not just kind of wanting a drink of water, but needing water to live. That's the way that my soul thirsts for you. And like I said before, it becomes more poignant if you realize that David is in a dry and weary land. And when he finds himself in the midst of that, it's still the thirst of his soul that he's interested in. And so it's important for us to look at just a little bit of David's backstory to figure out how he got to this wilderness that he's in. Many of you probably remember that David was the youngest of eight sons. He was a little shepherd boy. His older brothers were soldiers. They were warriors. But against all odds, God chose little David, the shepherd boy, to be king of Israel. And it's against all odds, partially because he picked him over his older brothers, but also because there was a king of Israel who was alive and well. And yet God called David. And he does make David king and he gives him victory in battle and he establishes a nation under his rule. And God made a covenant with David. In 2 Samuel, he makes a covenant with David and it begins this way. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. God has been with David. He's made some bold promises, but he's followed through on all of them. He's proved himself faithful and trustworthy. So when we find David in the wilderness, he's not a little shepherd boy anymore. He's an old man. At this point, he has 19 sons that we know of, and most of his kids are grown. And his third-born son, Absalom, has raised an army against David, and he's coming after David. His own son is coming to kill him and take the throne. And so it says that in 2 Samuel, if you read this story, it says he flees south to the land of Edom. So in order to get to Edom, he has to go through the wilderness of Judah, which is where he writes this psalm. So Edom is in modern-day Jordan. And if you Google image Jordan, you're going to see sand and camels, and that's about it. And so what I want you to think about is the sand and camels, that was the destination. Here, David is in the desert outside of the sand and camels. And so you have to wonder why in this physical desert, but also this emotional desert where he's running for his life from his son who he loves, why does he seek God? It's because he has a history with God. It's because God has always proven himself faithful. In verse two, it says, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David has been in the tabernacle. This is before the temple. He's been in the tabernacle. He has seen the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence of God dwelled in those days. And in verse three, he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You've seen that cross-stitched on pillows. You've seen that on goofy posters in Lifeway Christian Bookstore, but I don't want you to let that just wash over you because your steadfast love is better than life. That's the why. Why does his lips praise him? Because even if his son kills him in the desert, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. My wife, Brandy, and I have a cat named Luna. And I realize by saying cat that I've already lost 50% of the room. (laughs) But I want you to bear with me. It's not that I'm a cat person. I guess if having a cat and liking a cat makes you a cat person, I am a cat person. But I grew up with Jack Russell Terriers. I raised cattle. I had a cockatiel. I had hamsters. I had dogs, cats. So I'm an animal person, okay? But we have a cat. And her name's Luna. And in so many ways, she's a stereotypical cat um, because she always has this sort of condescending look on her face like we're really stupid and she's better than us. She enjoys being petted only when it's her idea and it's for the amount of time that she sees fit. Um, But perhaps, well, and also she knows her name very well. 
but it's a toss-up whether she's actually going to respond to it or not, unless it's immediately followed by treat or catnip, which are also two words that she knows. Um, But she's stereotypical primarily because she's scared of everything. So, like, our ice maker is, like, enemy fire. And the vacuum cleaner might as well be a werewolf. And I will literally stick my head down next to it. I'm like, look, Luna, it's not, it's not going to do anything. Doesn't care. Terrifying to her. Um, she, her favorite place to hang out is we have a screened-in back porch. She loves hanging out there. But Brandy and I joke that she has this superpower because if a lawnmower starts anywhere in Orange County she immediately senses it and will just start throwing herself against the glass door wanting in. So it's interesting. She's scared of everything, but she's not scared of Brandy and me to the point that it's almost stupid sometimes because Brandy will pick her up and she's this dainty little cat. Her face is like this big. Brandy will pick her up and like stick her face inside of her mouth. Like she's going to bite her face off and she's just like, whatever. Or she'll sit on the, on the chairs, and when it's time to eat, I'm like, Luna, Luna. And I sit on her without putting my full weight on her, and I would literally crush her. She'd be gone if I sat on her, but she's like, I don't care. And also, if, if anyone has been around our house, they know that it's a fact that Luna likes me more than Brandy. Because Brandy kind of forces Luna to snuggle with her, you know, like she'll pick her up upside down and try to hold her like a baby, but she doesn't hiss or bite or scratch or anything because she knows eventually Brandy's going to put her down. So that was perhaps too much information about my cat. But here, here's the point. I think that the reason Luna trusts Brandy and me so much is because we rescued her. When we were in seminary, um, a bunch of RTS students, some of them here, Uh, lived in the condos, this condo complex in Oviedo. And and one of our classmates found Luna under his car crying. It was a rainy day. She's probably only like three or four weeks old, way too young to be on her own. She was covered in mud. She was wet. She was bleeding because she had so many fleas on her and she was just crying. And so this guy took her in Long story short, Carrie Smith ended up with her. So the the real reason that Luna trusts us is we rescued her from Carrie Smith. (laughs) But nonetheless, she trusts us because we rescued her. We took her in and she went from being this scared little cat next to death to having two human slaves who do anything that she asked for. So here's my point. If you're a Christian you have a history with Christ. And some of us here have been Christians from the time we were little. I remember praying for teddy bears and squirrels when I was little. There's not really a day that I didn't know Jesus. And some of you have radical conversion stories, but regardless, we all have a history with Christ. He's proven himself faithful to us again and again. And just like Luna, we were utterly alone we couldn't do anything to help ourselves. But God reached out and rescued us and adopted us and welcomed us into his home and into his family. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord today, if you don't think of yourself as a Christian, 
I want you to consider this. When Luna was under that car crying, she didn't even know what she was crying out for. She had no concept of what a human being was. She had no concept of what a dry house was. She just knew she needed something beyond herself. And I think if I could give you anything, it would be that you would feel your need for something beyond yourself. Because the reality is we all need Jesus. The days that we feel closest to God, no one really comes to the end of their life and looks over it and said, I grew the most on the easy days. We get the closest to God on the days that we really are aware of our need for him. If you're not a Christian, Jeremiah 33.3 says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. There's nothing better that we have to offer. We want you to be part of this family, not so that you look like us or give your money to us or vote like us or think like us, but because we want you to know the love of our Heavenly Father. So I encourage you, if you're a Christian, think of your history with Christ. Because if you can't ground yourself in that truth, you're not going to sing when you're in the desert. If you look around and all you see is sand, you're not going to sing. But remind yourself of his faithfulness. From here, David shifts his focus to the future. And in verse 5, he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He says this with certainty, even though there's no evidence. As he looks around, all he sees is desolation and an army coming after him. But he says this with certainty. And in the last three verses, David says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. That word exult, I'll be honest with you. Two years ago, I probably didn't know what that word meant. It's not something that we say a lot. I mean... Has anyone said the word exalt, not quoting scripture in the past week? Probably not. But exalt means to celebrate over a victory. So you've just put the ring on her finger and she said yes. So you're like, yes. That's exalting. David is talking about exalting when he's hiding for his life in the desert from his own son. He has no evidence of it. But in the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel, God promises, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And how can he trust in this promise when it looks like certain death is on his way? Well, again, it's because of his past. He believes in God's promises for the future because God has always been faithful in the past. Much like Mary Pravitt, the girl guide, um, there's a famous Austrian psychologist named Viktor Frankl, who was also a concentration camp survivor in World War II. Some of you may have heard of him, or you might know his most famous book is called Man's Search for Meaning. Um, But he observed that 
people who survived the concentration camps, he was in Auschwitz, among other concentration camps, um, no one had a physical advantage over anyone else. They worked 20 hours a day doing hard manual labor. It was uh, freezing cold and they had no fire, nothing to keep themselves warm. They got one piece of bread a day and maybe some broth if they were lucky. So no one had a physical advantage over anyone else, but the people who survived had a sense of hope and a sense of purpose. They believed somehow, I think my wife might still be alive out there. I think somehow I might get to see my parents again. I think somehow we might be rescued. I think somehow God's hand is even on us here and there might be a purpose beyond this. But Frankl said, once someone lost that sense of hope and that sense of purpose, they'd be dead within a couple of days. Hope helps us persevere. And so I want you to think this morning, what do you, what do you hope in? What do you hope in this morning? Some of you just hope that you can get to lunch soon, or you hope that your fishing trip won't get rained out. You hope you can pass math this quarter. You hope that he likes you back. But whatever it is that you hope for, the reality is there's no certainty that it's going to happen. It doesn't mean it's wrong to hope for those things, but there's no certainty that we'll even make it home alive. There's only one hope that we can be assured of, and it's in the hope of the promise of the gospel. You've heard this before, but I want you to hear what John says in Revelation 21 when he sees a vision of the day of the Lord when Christ returns. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. This is the great Christian hope. This is the great Christian hope. We trust in God because of his faithfulness in the past. And we put our trust in the great Christian hope. But the present is the difficult part, isn't it? In verse 8, David says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. When someone is holding you up with their right hand, what can you do but cling on? What can you do but cling on? That's what David did. I think that's the only thing that got him through. Right now, The desert is the reality, and David clings on, just as many of us feel like we're clinging on this morning. And the reality isn't that David's singing because he's happy, because he's actually heartbroken. If you read the story, the way it ends, Absalom is killed, and David's heart is ripped out, and he weeps and says, I would rather I had died than my son died. It's not the kind of exulting that David was hoping for. But here in the desert, running for his life, 
Where else can he go? What else can he cling to but Elohim, the God who's been faithful to him? When Jesus was preaching and his message got too radical, too uncomfortable for people, some of his followers started to leave. And he turned to his apostles and said, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else will we go to? You have the words of life. And I want to ask you this morning, do you find yourself in the desert? There is a reality that for our church, for Orangewood Church, 2018 has looked a lot like the desert for us. And I know that in this room, there are marriages who are struggling. There are people who are in the desert of addiction, the desert of depression, the desert of heartache. And the question that we all want to know is why? Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to go through this? And I don't have a good answer to the why, but I can tell you that God is good. Somehow in the midst of the desert, God is good. And sometimes that's all that we get. Our cat, Luna, after she was a few months old, she got really sick. And Brandy and I were full-time seminary students just scraping to get by and we definitely did not have a pet fund set aside. But you know how it is. We had taken her into our home. And at this point, Luna was like family to us. And it, it got to the point that she wasn't eating. And we realized if we didn't take her to the vet, she was going to die. But what we had to do to take her to a vet is we had to take this little scared, hurting cat and put her in a box and close the box. And then we took her into our car She had no concept of what a car was, and she cried the whole way there. And no matter how Brandy and I tried to comfort and say, it's okay, it's okay, she cried. She was terrified. And when we got to the vet, she was surrounded by huge dogs. She was in fluorescent lights, and then a strange man grabbed her out of the box. And I remember him holding her down on the examining table by the back of the neck, and she looked up with me with these scared eyes. And it's like she was saying, why are you letting them do this to me? Why are you letting them do this to me? And in that moment, there was nothing that I could do to communicate to Luna, I'm doing this because I love you. What she felt, what she wanted was leave me the heck alone. Get these people away from me and just leave me alone. And she didn't understand that that would be the most unloving thing I could do for her, that what she needed was what I was doing. But what's more, in her entire life, Luna will never understand. Every time we put her in that box and put her in the car and she ends up with those dogs and that strange man, she's gonna feel all those same emotions. Why? Because her thoughts are not my thoughts. And her ways are not my ways. I don't understand why we have to suffer. But I do know that God has a way of allowing those that he loves to go through the desert. 
the Israelites did, David did, and Jesus himself did. And in Hebrews 5.8, it says that Jesus, although he was the son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, the son of God, learned obedience through what he suffered. If that's how the son of God had to learn obedience, who am I to think that I should be immune from it? I don't know why we have to suffer, but I know that God is good. Tomorrow would be my dad's birthday, but we lost him five years ago to cancer and he never got to meet my daughter. He never got to see me graduate from seminary. He never even got to see my life here in Florida. And it's hard to want to sing in light of that. But I'll tell you why I sing. Nothing has ever made me long for the redemption, for the day of the Lord, for the day when there will be no more death, like losing my dad. And so I sing because I know that God is good, even when it doesn't look like it. And he's the one who can do something about this. I want you to think about Mary, the mother of Jesus, on day two after Jesus was crucified. We know how the story ends, but she didn't. Can you imagine her at Jesus' tomb, weeping, knowing that her son's body was lying lifeless on the other side of a rock? And I imagine her looking back on the prophecies from the angel from her relative Elizabeth, from Simeon, and thinking, how? I don't know how, but God had made her a miraculous promise once before that she, a virgin, would give birth to a child. And I just imagine she clung to God because where else could she go? So even in the midst of an impossible situation, when we look around and all we see is desert, we can cling to the promises of God. And Christians, here's the good news. We don't have to seek God in the tabernacle. We don't have to seek him in an ark. For those of us who put our faith in Christ Jesus, we have the spirit of the living God in our hearts. And the good news of the gospel is when you go to the desert, the Lord goes with you. And that is something worth singing about. Let's pray. Holy God, we need you. Every hour we need you. And though none of us would ask for suffering, none of us seek it, Lord, we know that there's something about suffering that draws us to your goodness and your faithfulness that shows us how much we need you. Would you remind us of your faithfulness, of your trustworthiness, even when we look around and we can't see any evidence that you're here, would you make yourself known? Would you make yourself known? Thank you so much for the hope that the gospel brings us. Thank you that this story doesn't end with death, and that we know there is a day that all things will be made new. 
We pray all these things in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.